Welcome to the 11th episode of our Religion and Praxis Conversation series. Today our guest is Alexander Matowski, Naval Postgraduate School, uh, California, and his book, Popular Dictatorships, published by Cambridge University Press, is the topic of our discussion, but along the lines of the ongoing Russian invasion of, of Ukraine. So electoral autocracies, regimes that adopt democratic institutions but subvert them to rule as dictatorships, have become the most widespread, resilient, and malignant non-democracies today. They have constantly and consistently ruled over a third of the countries in the world, including geopolitically significant states such as Russia, Turkey, Venezuela, Egypt, etc. Challenging conventional wisdom, uh, Matowski shows that the success of electoral authoritarianism is not due to this regime's superior capacity to repress or bribe or brainwash and manipulate their societies into submission, but is actually a product of their genuine popular appeal in countries experiencing the political, economic, and security crisis. And in this case, in the context of Russian-Ukrainian war, this is particularly important how the Putin regime sustains um, the the, um, the legitimacy. Um, so promising efficient, strong armed rule tampered by popular accountability Elected strongmen such as Putin attract mass support in societies traumatized by turmoil, dysfunction, and injustice, allowing them to rule through the ballot box. So the crisis legitimization strategy makes electoral authoritarianism the most significant threat to global peace and democracy. In light of the Putin's regime, the biggest threat that it has as nationalist inside, argues Matowski, and if this war is in the interest of Putin, of course, there are questions, how far can this war last? What do Russian people want? How, how supportive are they of this war? Can Russia benefit from isolation? How costly can this crisis be for Putin and his surrounding? What can Ukraine do? How is the West approaching this war? These are the questions we'll be discussing in this podcast. Please also follow us on Twitter at Religion and Praxis and follow our Facebook page. Today we have Alexander Matowski as our guest, an assistant professor in the Department of National Security Affairs at the Naval Postgraduate School and an associate at the Davis Center for um, Russian and Eurasian Studies at Harvard. His research focuses on the dynamics of popular opinion, protest, political violence, and conflict in the authoritarian regimes, with a focus on Europe and the former um, Soviet Union. Um, Alexander Matowski holds PhD in uh, government uh, from Cornell University, MA in war studies from King's College London, and BA in law from St. Cyril and Methodius University in Skopje. Uh, prior to his academic career, uh, Alexander was national security advisor in the government of Northern Macedonia and political and military advisor in the Northern Macedonian Ministry of Defense, as well as a research uh, director at the forum in the Forum Center for Strategic Research and Documentation in Skopje, North Macedonia. 
his recent book titled Popular Dictatorships, which is published by Cambridge University Press and which I strongly encourage you to um, buy and order, examines the genesis and behavior of electoral um, autocracies, the most widespread and persistent form of authoritarianism in, in, in the world. Um, today. So we welcome you, Alex, and um, also we have been together at Harvard, so I'm really, really happy to see my old friends. So floor is yours, and please, your opening statements now, and then we'll have a discussion. Uh, thank you, Tornike, and thank you for this invitation. It's a great pleasure to be here and, and talk um, and present in front of uh, your audience. Um, so uh, I will kind of uh, talk broadly about like the context around Ukraine. Just before I start, I have to say my usual disclaimer that I present my own research and not the views of the U.S. Navy Department of Defense or the U.S. government here. Um, so uh, just to kind of get, get maybe our, the, our conversation going a little bit, one aspect uh, uh, on which I might kind of initiate the discussion is like uh, a lot of the analysis on the Ukrainian war going into it has uh, mispredicted events in, in, uh, in major ways. And all really all the fundamental fundamental questions: Will the Kremlin invade? Why it invaded? Why the invasion got botched? Uh, what are the goals going forward? If, uh, I argue are firmly grounded in Russian domestic politics, and that's the reason a lot, why a lot of the analysis um, missed. So classical foreign policy analysis and military analysis mispredicted these behaviors, as they ignored domestic politics in, uh, to a great uh, degree. So studying the logic of Russia's authoritarian regime, its corruption. And public opinion is more predictive, I argue, on, of Russian behavior than studying military posture, structure, geopolitics, like foreign policy and those kinds of things. All, all of these are subservient to what's going on inside uh, really the Putin regime. So I'll make just three general points uh, before we step into like Q&A. Uh, the first one is that Russia's aggressive posture abroad, and this is going back in, in the past, not just like the current conflict, is fundamentally rooted in Vladimir Putin's strongman appeal at home, which is the cornerstone of his, of his regime and the logic of its functioning. So let me unpack this a little bit. Uh, as, as I argue in my book, and this kind of looks broader than, than just Putin's regime, uh, Putin's regime is the epitome of this sort of behavior, the key foundation of these regimes is specifically Vladimir Putin's rise to power in Russia since now over 22 years ago was his ability to essentially project uh, um, this, this image of a competent strongman who can reverse Russia's collapse and humiliation. So his entire political persona, which he still projects to this day, was constructed with one orchestrated conflict at the beginning, the brutal Second Chechen War. Uh, this conflict turned Putin into an, uh, from an unknown, you know, initially awkward and camera shy apparatchik to an instant star, uh, really boosting his ratings from zero to over 80 percent in a bit uh, over a month in 99. And the reason is because subduing Chechnya in 99 was a task that was that seemed impossible given Russia's weakness at the time and really made Putin look like the strongman messiah uh, who can reverse the country's seemingly unstoppable post-Soviet decline in many ways. So Russia was suffering what amounted to the biggest peacetime decline in history at the moment. So in that context, just imposing a modicum of order made Putin look like a savior uh, for a population which was desperate for stability. So the main paradox in, of Putinism in a nutshell and many other regimes of this sort throughout the world is that they have been sustained by 
remaining relatively popular in societies traumatized by crises. Like crisis is the defining. They come out of crisis and they prey on populations that want those crises to end and then they crave a strong man, basically. Um, so playing this indispensable strongman gave Putin approval ratings between 60 and 90% for the last over 20 years. And these were largely genuine, basically. So he, he had the super majority support, if you think in intellectual terms, and this has been the main pillar of his regime because it granted domination over Russian institutions and elites. Like no you know, oligarch, regional bureaucrat or, or governor, uh, nobody from the institutions could challenge Putin as long as he had that popularity rating. And at the same time, that popularity kind of shielded a lot of the Russian corrupt elites from the popular, you know, anger, if you like, uh, for a lot of times. So, so it was kind of the cornerstone of the regime because it secured peace in many ways. Uh, but how, however, this kind of uh, this appeal began to exhaust itself over time because first, like, because it succeeded, if you like, at the beginning, it restored stability on the political front. And then it became a drag on development. Uh, the, the corruption, the dysfunction of, of the system became the crisis itself, if you like, over time. So by around 2011-12, a growing number of Russians were willing to go in the streets and protest against the regime, threatening to unravel this majority consensus that sustained it. And this is the key root of Russia's aggressive behavior before that and, and, and since, um, which takes me to the second point I want to make. The wars in Ukraine... Uh, both the old ongoing ones since 14 and the current invasion are not about Western military encroachment and NATO enlargement, uh, although these themes are used to justify the aggressiveness, but are driven by the internal threats of the, to the weakening Putin regime. So the best indication that Putin's regimes lie elsewhere, and specifically in, in Russian internal politics, is provided by this drastic shift in the attitude of the Putin regime towards NATO. Um, in, in like, if you look at the the moment of NATO's latest uh, enlargement in 2004, when Putin was still riding high on this consensual support at home, Russian opposition to NATO enlargement was at an all-time low. So Putin was making statements, we want to be partners, we all even want to be members of NATO at the time. Uh, and there are other metrics that kind of show how how friendly actually they were. They, there were direct statements by the foreign minister, you know, Igor Ivanov at the time, and even like hardliners yeah, like the more security KGB, ex-KGB types within the, the Putin elite who are saying, we don't intend to make a big fuss of this enlargement. And then all of a sudden, this whole thing switches. And the sentiment is really reversed by something else. It's domestic threat, the fear of pro-democracy and anti-corruption color revolutions, which were kind of unfolding in the former Soviet Union and Eastern Europe at that time. Um, and in particular, uh, starting with Ukraine's Orange Revolution in 2004, and then the Arab Spring later on, what these did was they demonstrated how quickly a strongman regime like Putin's can be toppled when populations turn against them. So just one, one kind of figure I, I used to illustrate this, to see how acute this internal threat to the Putin regime is, remember that he rules over a regime that in 2011, when the Mubarak regime was deposed by a mass revolt in the Arab Spring, Russia was ranked 31 places worse than Egypt on the Transparency International's Global Corruption Index. That's one third of the entire scale of Transparency International lower, basically. So Egypt was at the 112th place and Russia was at 142nd place out of 183 countries. So it was far more corrupt than a regime that just got deposed violently at the time. So this is the real threat that turns the Kremlin and against 
Russia's neighbors in the West. And NATO expansion is like a perfect foil to blame for this uh, rather than the internal argument. So to resuscitate the strongman appeal, Putin turns to deliberately inciting conflicts abroad, especially in Ukraine. And what they're trying to achieve with these conflicts in terms of effects for Russian domestic politics is that they temporarily reverse the clock back to the early years of Putinism, like Chechnya, basically. Uh, they, they allowed Putin to demonstrate competence and restore the mantle of this indispensable strongman at home and then remove attention away from all the trouble that the regime is creating from, from corruption and so on. There's a lot of uh, public opinion evidence that these conflicts really make people not worry about corruption as much. It demobilizes opposition to Putin's rule because even people that dislike the regime are reluctant to resist when the country is facing an external crisis, basically. Um, and it makes people afraid of a future without Putin. You know, the people who lived through the 90s, who were traumatized by the 90s, are afraid that their country will slip back into the chaos. So that's why you have this generational split in terms of people, how much people support or resist the regime. Uh, another important thing, especially, you know, with the most recent conflict, is it really legitimizes an increasingly repressive regime at home. So, like, Putinism has turned quite, you know, repressive uh, relative to what it was before. So, when you create this sense of an external threat, you basically justify this repressive attitude here. Uh, specifically with Ukraine, you know, it, it also allows to remove the Ukrainian uh, alternative or in his example uh, of a different pro-Western type of government that can motivate a similar revolt uh, uh, like the Maidan revolution in 2014 and have it overspill in, in Russia. Um, so just to illustrate with one kind of data point uh, from, from surveys, and this is coming from the Levada independent uh, poster. Uh, so this is in 2014. Uh, in late 2013, after this wave of protests uh, that swept Russia in 2011-2012, the majority of Russians, uh, about 44% versus 33%, said they wanted Putin to leave office after the end of his term in 2018. After Crimea annexation and the Donbass uh, conflict, this trend is completely reversed. So by 2015, a year after the annexation, 60% declare they wanted Putin to stay for another term, and only 20% still wanted him to leave. Uh, what was happening before the current uh, conflict was exactly the same. The trends were starting to, to go back to more people wishing Putin to leave in 2024. And we, we, we're yet to see what, what will happen now. Um, but it's, it's likely that the trends are going to reverse as they did uh, after Crimea in this sense. So it's kind of uh, these types of conflicts extend the lease on life on the Putin regime. Uh, of course, they're exhausting Russia. It's, it's, a, it's a strategy that eventually will run out of uh, uh, you know, steam, uh, but that's really what the, all they have to kind of stay in power because essentially his main problem is he cannot retire. Uh, my, my final, just kind of to wrap it up, my final point is really how this drives geopolitics and the conflict. So as a security, like in a broader sense, as a security threat, Russia, Russia we shouldn't treat Russia as a rising uh, competitor like China here. Instead, it's a declining rogue power threat, the rogue regime, basically. It's like turning something into something behavioral, into something of an oversized North Korea in many ways. So declining, existentially threatened dictatorship that's lashing out at the world so it can uh, cling on to power at home. Um, now, a country of the size of Russia boosting the, you know, boasting the, the largest kind of nuclear arsenal in the world and, and behaving in this way is tremendously destabilizing, needless to say. 
And IR is in many ways more dangerous now than the confrontation with the Soviet Union, which was more stable most of the Cold War. So we are in a position where you have a threatened dictatorship, which is more prone to lash out, miscalculate, as we saw with the, you know, the launching of this invasion than the Soviet Union ever was, um, really. So uh, I'll stop here and maybe we can expand on some of these topics in the, the Q&A. Thanks very much, um, Alex. Um, a few few very important points here. Um, you, you're talking about the well, the, to sustain Putinism. Putin somehow um, needs um, a crisis, and and I think you you tracked this crisis excellently both in your book and your previous research that there are some correlations and interesting causal story between the the amount of crisis and his rankings. I wonder how costly can this crisis be for for Putin because the stakes are pretty high. And obviously, Navalny is in jail. Right. There is no, no necessarily growing protest at the moment against the war, at least as much as we know. So first question will be, well, how costly can this crisis be for Putin? And second, maybe if you can elaborate whether actually the isolation itself can be beneficial for Putin to yeah. build some kind of North Korea state, which, which, which right. in a way still has some sort of uh, maneuvering and and space for maneuvering. So these are the two questions, and I have others uh, later. Right. No. No. Thank you. Those are kind of uh, crucial questions to to think about. And in terms of staying power, uh, his main problem while the war lasts is actually kind of not losing the war. So like uh, a lot of people feel. I mean, when you look at kind of public opinion, a lot of people think that uh, the pressure of sanctions, the declining living standards, are going to make the population turn against this. But those processes are really slow. So like the first instinct of populations when under this external threat is to gather around the, the tribal campfire, basically, this national campfire we're fighting for our survival mentality and really resist stopping the war. So like that was the mechanism they wanted to initiate. And like uh, I'm kind of doing some, some additional research now focusing on the, the Milosevic regime in Serbia in the 90s which is really the, if you like, in many ways, the pioneer in inventing this model of uh, staying in power through conflict. And what happened with Milosevic is every time he stopped the conflict or you know made a peace agreement or didn't have a conflict in the background, he was facing people in the streets, basically. Um, but immediately starting a conflict, that demobilized everybody, including the, the opponents of the regime. So as long as the war lasts... Uh, you know, there is this tension to basically kind of endure the other hardships. Uh, so the bigger problem for the Putin regime right now is losing the war, looking like you're not achieving the objectives as much. Um, and the key the key swing vote, if you like, in this setup uh, in Russia is, is the nationalists, really. Um, the nationalists are the in the electorate. And in the elite are the swing votes because uh, a lot of these people kind of man the security services, if you like. Uh, in the electorate, they're kind of the central force between liberals, communists, all these various kind of other groups in, in society. So basically, Putin is now more in danger of nationalists turning against him than any other group in society. Um, uh, so betraying even the radical nationalist objectives of sub subjugating Ukraine by either allowing stalemate, making peace before military options are exhausted, puts Putin's regime at a tremendous risk at home. So they embarked on this super risky adventure and not achieving the objective is like the, the worst thing they, they could do. So this has a lot of escalatory pressure on, on them right now um, in many ways.
Mm. Um, can you can you guide us through um, the the public opinion? What does Russian people want from this regime? Some people are saying, well, he the propaganda was so powerful that at this point Russian people really want sort of the genocidal war. That's what they demand from Putin. Some other, some other scholars say, well, there are different people who are afraid, obviously, to show their uh, frustration because you're you know they changed the law. There is a high risk for that. So can you elaborate on, on on what is actually going on in Russian public opinion at the moment, and right. and, and and if if how can we actually measure public opinion in such states per se? Right. So reliable. Yeah, just to start like with what's driving public opinion, and I'll elaborate on how reliable these these kind of measures are. You have to realize what's at stake here, not just like surely propaganda, but also. You know, propaganda cannot succeed without predisposition, basically. So propaganda is not something which you kind of completely mold somebody's opinion. It's propaganda is something where you take somebody's stereotypes and predispositions and mold them in ways that that favor you, basically. So you have to have that those predispositions. So the mix of propaganda and predispositions, you have to realize what's at stake for the population that is sub, you know, subject to that propaganda. The reason why people are supporting for the war is that much of the Russian population still feels they're fighting to preserve Russia's identity, which is essentially imperial identity, to preserve the lands that are rightfully Russian. So they feel like this is for defending the motherland type of uh, position. So uh, while many are reluctant to fight, even those that are supporting this, this sentiment is strong enough to, to prop up the Putin regime and keep the conflict going. Again, the closest analogy are the Yugoslav collapse and the conflict. So like, again, I mentioned Milosevic, there's other kind of nationalisms that drove this. But the Serb army, a lot of people think this was like everybody was very enthusiastic about the, the ethnic conflict. But the Serb army had 50 to 80 percent, some cases, 90 percent desertion rate during the conflict. So they didn't really want to go and die for this. But the population was still willing to support Milosevic as the only po uh, politician that seemed capable of preserving the Serb imperial identity and, and territory in this um, setup. So in, in this background, the key interest for the Putin regime is the, for the war to last. As long as it does, everybody will be reluctant to challenge him. It's kind of the big picture. Uh, in terms of how many, like how, how are these divisions in, in society working, there's a lot of debate of whether support for the war is real. And given the increased repressiveness of the Putin regime, you cannot basically even say this is a war. It has to be a special military operation. People are afraid of uh, to voice opposition to the war. Uh, but reality is more complicated and unfortunately more grim than this. First, there are ways to actually estimate how much people are lying in surveys. Uh, so kind of sophisticated methodologies, if you, if you like. So there's a recent study by London School of Economic Researchers who are using the list experiment technique. So this is a statistical trick that allows responders to give anonymous responses on sensitive topics. And they found that only about 15% of Russians are falsely reporting they support the war. Um, in their survey, direct responses on the questions uh, say that 68% support the war and that the real support estimated with the list experiment is about 53%. Uh, so the support is not super majority, but it's still the simple majority, right? Uh, and this majority seems to have more intense views on the, the issue. You know, the researchers found that risk takers are more likely to support the war and be honest about it. Uh, and, and this, I think, overlaps with nationalists, like this uh, swing nationalist vote in the um, in, in, in kind of the, the population. So 
in, in essence, the more passive minority is against the war and a more aggressive majority is in favor. So again, from a regime standpoint, it's more dangerous to disappoint the aggressive majority and to stop the war. Um, and this was, on, by the way, this was an online survey. So they, they were sampling a population that's more likely to be resisting the war, like the younger, more educated urban using the internet. So you, you would expect in the population these numbers of real support to be above even 53%. So like essentially the support for the war is, is real, if you like. Um, even if, we, if a lot of people are falsifying their preferences, you should keep in mind this is still enough for the Putin regime to remain in power. So like, I don't know, going back to Václav Havel, uh, pretending is obeying, right? So like those who pretend, pretend to support a regime do not rebel against the regime. Uh, yes, granted, this kind of fake support is less solid. It can tip over into an anti-regime bandwagon, but that does not matter while it lasts in many ways, and it can last a long time. And, and you're saying an um, interesting point here. Sorry, um, if um, to, to start because you, you mentioned this: if the war lasts, it's in the Putin's interest in a way. So, how far can this war last from the Kremlin's perspective? How sustainable is this incompetent army, seemingly? Yeah. And 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 in general terms, like how in the long term vision, it, it seems to me that there is a lot of there are a series of miscalculations on behalf of the military people over there. I mean, right. you're definitely top expert to talk about this, but I wonder what's the what's the interest in kind of keeping it going? How so sustainable that is? No, absolutely, that's a great question. That's kind of the Achilles heel of the strategy here, as it turned out. So they were far more confident. Again, like one of the. Uh, one of the reasons why a lot of analysts kind of missed this and was that they didn't look at the pathologies of authoritarian regimes, this kind of closed up group thing in these yes men kind of always not giving the bad news to the leader, the isolation of Putin, basically. It's like, oh, these are pathologies of autocracies. And they led to the initial decision making, which was, you know, frankly, delusional in the way they staged the war at the beginning. Um, and it's not clear actually how how much they they get basically what's going on on the ground as well, which is also dangerous. They might be at the end back against the wall and kind of losing, and tempted to to you know use you know weapons of mass destructions and things like that going forward. So that's that's kind of a, a crucial problem. But like in terms of like when Russia gets exhausted in in military terms. The force is pretty exhausted. They basically lost about, a, a, by a conservative estimate, about a quarter of that combat ability that invaded Ukraine. A quarter of those battalion tactical groups uh, that invaded Ukraine, uh, which were the majority of the ground forces of Russia overall, were you know, lost, either casualties, wounded, equipment loss. So it was horrific in terms of the incompetence and, and the the losses they sustained so far. So there's a combatability, like the conventional forces of Russia have, have proven they're far less capable of carrying out tasks. So really the, the war is about the next month and a half or so. After after that, like basically the, you know, unless like the Ukrainian defense collapses, which is unlikely, um, the, the, the fighting force of the Russian army will be spent for major operations. So like everything after that can only be kind of minor, minor gains. Um, so that month and a half has the biggest kind of potential for, for escalation. Uh, and we'll see where that goes, whether the, there's a lot of debate in Russian media and like on the state side, which is uh, always indicative of what the Kremlin wants to do. Like the propagandists are kind of trying out like, you know, what the public is going to accept before the Kremlin moves on these. So 
they should be taken seriously, even those kind of crazy statements they're, they're making. Um, uh, the, so there's debate about full mobilization is, is one option they might pursue with this, basically kind of double down um, and escalate the conflict, like mobilize the population to fight and uh, you know, turn this into an open war, if you like, a declared war. Um, so that, that's one key, uh, possibility. But with the current setup, the, the fighting force there is going to be spent in, in a month or a month and a half, you know, according to most estimates. So whatever they achieve in this period is, is it um, in, in many ways. So, and that kind of creates a lot of pressure on the, on the regime to, to deliver. So what they're trying to do is to get that land bridge to Crimea and also uh, establish some control over the whole of Donbass, like expand. Um, and then really maybe they're trying to encircle Ukrainian forces that are in the salient in the far east of the country now. And the question is whether there's ability. There's, there's a lot of doubt that they actually have the, the ability to achieve that um, objective rather than kind of push more in like World War I style, uh, slow, slow advance, uh, because they're sustaining a lot of casualties. You mentioned, of course, the most password in, in, in everywhere in the media. It's obviously the uh, use of mass destruction, the weapons of mass destruction. And I wonder what's your... Um, estimation of, of the whole is, is it sort of a bluff strategy or is it really the thing which can be because the, the the real reason if you use the mass destruction you are destined to die for sure right it's somehow kind of has this reciprocity and people around putin who are highly corrupted people are they are they the goebbels and Goerings? are they really ready to die for the fuhrer i mean are they in a way all these luxuries of having you know um, you know, yachts and, and and penthouses, lovers and traveling all over the place and the, their sort of lifestyle, which is absolutely, you know, is it really ready to do this kind of thing for him? Because if he makes a decision, it clearly will have a response. And that gets me another question. How West is approaching this war? I think we'll have to unfold this question a little bit. So first part of it is, well, whether or not this is a real thing. Are they ready after this uh, one and a half months to use these weapons of mass destruction? And sort of another is, of course, are the people really ready to die for Putin? The people around him, this this inner circle. Right. No. No. The, that's kind of a lot. A lot to unpack in all, all crucial questions right now in everybody's mind. So one, if you think in kind of purely military terms, the say nuclear weapons, which have been the most kind of threatened like uh, the, the, the platform for most of the threats coming from the Kremlin are not very, I mean, the, the, they're talking about tactical nuclear weapons. So these are nuclear weapons that are some, you know, uh, a third of the size of the, the explosion force of Hiroshima or, or a tenth of the explosion force of Hiroshima, that they're kind of scalable, if you like, and, and they'll yield. Um, with these weapons, the problem is these are created for massed warfare. So like when you have concentrated groups of the enemy's military, you throw one of these nuclear weapons against them and you kind of destroy them. Uh, Ukraine's conflict doesn't have targets for that, uh, basically. So what, from a military standpoint, you don't have a, a, a viable target to use. So you can only use it as an intimidation weapon. And the intimidation assumes is something along the lines, we have more nukes, we just threw one, we can throw more. But that creates a hugely dangerous escalatory crisis, uh, which might create pressure within the regime, if, as you say. Like a lot of people, you know, the answer to like, are they ready to die for the Fuhrer is no. Uh, so it's a very risky thing to do. Like, you know, that will be very extreme 
uh, you know, use, nuclear use would be a very extreme scenario, even though it's like the likelihood is increased from its, you know, very, very, very small probability usually. Um, the other, uh, it's, it's actually more on the, uh, the side of chemical weapons that the debate is, is being um, uh, waged right now. Because the, the, the dug-in warfare in the east of Ukraine is more amenable um, to, to this kind of, of weapons. If, if uh, they, they succeed to surround a group of Ukrainian defenders, as in Mariupol, where there was already reports of claimed uh, use of some chemical weapons, maybe not the, the most, uh, it was kind of more on the irritant side rather than the, the nerve agents and things like that. Again, these are all unverified things. Um, that, that makes more sense from a military standpoint than, than a nuclear use, because nuclear use might trigger things in, in, in scenarios you don't want to, you know, even for the Putin regime, they don't want to escalate that much. Like this idea of sustaining a conflict is you don't want to up the ante so much that this gets out of hand. You want to sustain a, uh, a slow brewing kind of conflict rather than something that explodes. You don't want explosions. You want like sustained fire, if you like. Um, so it's more military logic suggests more uh, things on the on the other end. Uh, another indicator for why this might be a difficult thing to pull off is actually public opinion. Uh, there was a recent survey, I think last week, from uh, Republic.ru, a group of anonymous um, uh, sociologists in Russia run a, a survey on a nationally representative sample, which shows that almost 50% of the population is against using nuclear weapons preemptively in any scenario including if the West, you know, fights the, uh, you know, the, you know, kind of enters the war in Ukraine and fights against the Russian forces. So that includes also the radical, like the nationalists. They don't want to use those nuclear weapons as well in any scenario, except if Russia gets attacked by, by such uh, weapons. So kind of in, in retaliation. So public opinion is a very useful standard to gauge the, how the regime is going to react in Russia, because, they're really obsessed by public opinion, as I kind of tried to, to argue in, in, in the initial statement, like their, uh, their popularity is kind of everything. So they're super sensitive to how the public might react um, to this. So that's might be the bridge too far, but there are things that can happen below that threshold that might actually drive things uh, towards that threshold, chemical weapon use. Uh, they might be encouraged by, you know, uses of su such agents in places like Syria and, and like the Western non-response, if you like, to that. Uh, so they, they kind of gradually start using um, in that sense. The other escalation potential, as I mentioned, is a full mobilization in Russia, which would uh, really kind of increase the, the odds of things going in, in all sorts of directions. So yes, kind of the, the general answer is below the nuclear threshold, but maybe gradually inching towards it uh, through various other means um, in terms of... Uh, you know, weapons and, and escalation in general. We have a few questions from the audience. So to keep um, also the audience engaged, I will ask uh, some of the questions. So one of them is, do you think Putin's plan he hoped to achieve with this war might have a completely different outcome than previous wars, like the ones in Crimea and Georgia had? Did he underestimated Ukrainian resistance is the question. Yeah, no, no doubt. They, they, they not just un underestimate, kind of everybody underestimated it because everybody assumed the, the Ukrainian military will be performing on the level of 2014 when they were just kind of rolled over. Uh, uh, not, not even like later in 2014 when actually Ukrainians put some very brave resistance, like 2014, 2015, 
the Battle of Donetsk Airport and, and then uh, su- such kind of uh, events really like for a very under-resourced, under-prepared military, they had very, very bra- brave and uh, you know, resilient uh, response. So everybody assumed they'll, they'll crumble basically. The Kremlin, the Kremlin's plan was, was absolutely delusional in terms of all the objectives they they were trying to achieve. So they they were advancing on so many axes of attack. They were basically trying to get the whole country safe for the most Western uh, parts of the country. They they really assumed they can do regime change um, in many ways. And and the numbers with which they they went into the war are ridiculously low um, is an occupation force. So like they, I mean, off the top of my head, I think they had uh, uh, two or three soldiers per thousand population uh, as an occupation force, which is, if you compare it to anything that, that happened before, so like successful occupations like uh, you know Germany after the Second World War had up to a hundred Allied uh, troops stationed in Germany to police the the state after it was defeated, uh, versus just three in Russia. Even like uh, other very criticized other invasions, such as the Iraq War, right? So the Iraq War had about six. Uh, U.S. soldiers or coalition soldiers per thousand. So this was half that in, in Ukraine. So they grossly overest- underestimated the, the resistance. They, they attacked on too many axes. They were totally unprepared. Um, the decision obviously was made in a very tight circle um, and didn't, didn't even, even the commanders in the field didn't expect this would be happening. So they were enormously unprepared. The, mil- the troops were not like morally and, and psychologically indoctrinated, if you like, to, to go in major combat. And everybody was shocked on the Russian side. The Russians were more shocked going into this than the Ukrainians in a way. So like, surprise in military affairs should go the other way. Like the target should be surprised and the attacker should be prepared. Um, so they just like, it's, it's really hard to know what the psychological drivers of this are, but like the consensus is, it's one of the pathologies of authoritarianism, a very closed off leadership, deciding in a very tight circle, cut off from reality, if you like, making these decisions. Um, and there's also a corruptive element. So we, we're witnessing uh, arrests of major intelligence agencies, uh, officials and officers, like up to 100, 200, like, you know, all these speculative estimates vary, are, are put in like arrest, under arrest. Uh, and the argument is they they actually they, they got a lot of money to bribe people in Ukraine to to switch to the Russian side, and apparently they stole the money, expecting that Putin is not crazy enough to to go and invade Ukraine. Uh, so so you have a situation where like the the intelligence services of this country uh, of Russia, which was supposed to prepare this you know smooth invasion, if you like, and make Ukrainian officials just switch sides and everybody welcomes the Russians with flowers. Uh, just stole the money as well. So again, a, a pathology, domestic pathology is corruption uh, pathology, which goes through everything, like Russian military logistics, lack of communications, uh, you know, weapons misfunctioning. Uh, they're all part of this authoritarian pathology. That's why we have to look at like the domestic logic and not just like counting tanks and, and, and troops uh, going into this. But yes, they completely underestimate it. And it's not clear if they're still doing that. Uh, it's not clear how much Putin appreciates the real situation. Another question is, how long uh, how long can this war last if there is a whole reserve mobilization is called? So if he's calling this uh, whole mobilization, how long can it be? And there are analogies driven, will it be a Vietnam of Europe or will it be like more yeah. Chechen style? What is the scenario? 
Yeah, so that's that's really almost impossible to predict. So like, you know, it's almost on the border that we can't even speculate in, in an informed fashion about that. So again, like, you know, what is what is going to be the, the response of the population? What are the kind of the economic resources for that? Like Russia is pretty isolated. Uh, another kind of wild card is how much China is going to step into this to support Russia if it gets into dire straits economically and otherwise. Uh, they, they have another fundamental problem of actually uh, producing new weapons. So they're expanding their weapons, especially the more advanced ones, at a rate that is far beyond any replenishment capability. So, uh, you know, they've been using their precision-guided munitions uh, to a large degree. So the question is how, how far that's, that stockpile can be resupplied uh, going forward. So it's not just manpower recruiting people. It's also these advanced technologies. And for those, Russian military is dependent on imports from the West. Like, well, you know, even the things like microchips, which you need for essentially every advanced military technology today, they're, they're having problems procuring those. So, uh, you know, this, you see this degradation of the Russian combat uh, ability and combat potential uh, by the fact that they're using some and losing some very advanced airplanes, for instance, uh, we're just throwing the, the old-fashioned World War II dumb bombs. So they're not using precision-guided munitions. They're, they're just sending expensive aircraft and just throwing regular bombs, and they, they lose these to Ukrainian Air Force or air defenses um, just because they're running out maybe of that stockpile of precision-guided munitions. Um, the precision-guided munitions themselves, they have, uh, according to some kind of estimates, again, not, nothing is fully verified at these stages, they, they have a huge rate of misfire. Um, up to 60% of all the smart bombs they use uh, are, are reported to, to misfire, basically. So, you know, given all that chaos, if you like, it's really, really hard to, to predict um, how far it can go. Again, like a, a very a slow burn war as we had uh, in the, around kind of Donetsk and Luhansk since 2014 can last a very long time. But a high intensity war that we are seeing now uh, is going to at least slow down for some period of time. Like, up, you know, around this, the beginning of the summer, you know, very high intensity offensive operations will be very difficult to sustain uh, with, with the current force at the very least. If there is mobilization, you need to train that force. You need at least six months to turn like conscripts into effective fighting force, presuming you have the resources for that. So there's certainly going to be a lull in major operations for a while. I, I think that's kind of the best speculation we can we can do at this point. Thank you. And I will have a few more questions from the audience and then we're going to go back to my question. So the question is, well, um, um, the, the popular opinion is now against Poland or in Baltics. Do you think they'll be the next target? And another question is, what is the role of nationalists? Is Dugin so important as he's portrayed? Right. Uh, let, let me start with the nationalists. So Dugin, it's kind of hard. Um, it's a kind of a hard uh, quantity to, to evaluate. I mean, he, he has been uh, more of a courtier type of uh, nationalist. It's not clear how kind of committed he is to kind of real nationalism. Uh, again, all of these people are really used. Uh, it's really what, what the Kremlin believes. And the Kremlin is just very opportunistic. They would uh, hijack any ideology that seems to, to resonate with the swing voter. So like as things moved, as nationalists were the only kind of remaining swing voter, especially after they lost liberals around 2011, 2010, 11 
And after, they just uh, moved to, to nationalists and hijacked that agenda. So he's kind of being used as much as he's um, influential here. He was pushed away, actually, after a while, after the, the annexation of Crimea, when he was arguing we should go and conquer Novorossiya, he kind of became a little too much, actually, for the Kremlin. So he was pushed away for a while. Um, well, actually, my, my litmus test uh, for nationalist sentiment and what this impact is, is not Dugin, but actually Igor Strelkov, uh, who, you know, people who kind of know the Russian scene. This is a, a kind of ultra-nationalist, if you like, with security services background. And he was tasked to set up those uh, Donetsk and Luhansk republics after 2014, and then was kicked out again because he was too ambitious for what the Kremlin wanted to achieve. So this person is on television or on uh, online giving interviews all the time for the, the last uh, month or so of, of the war. And basically, you know, he's very, very, very critical of, of the war effort. He says we're failing. We cannot, like, he's very pessimistic about what can be achieved. And it's kind of a litmus test for me because uh, Putin can easily afford to imprison or kill the liberal opposition because they're not the core support for, for the regime. But he cannot censor Strelkov, actually, in the middle of this uh, military operation, who's giving interviews with really toxic criticism for the authorities. Um, nationalists, who he kind of represents in terms of his views, uh, think that the Russian, uh, the Putin regime bungled the war. And they want to clean up house, actually, with an even harsher dictatorship, basically. So they, they don't really want the rule of law to prosecute corrupt officials, but really another Stalin to execute the current elites and bring in ones that can win the war. Um, so it's kind of a litmus test that they cannot censor him they, or they're not willing yet to censor him because of the threat of a nationalist revolt, actually, uh, going in the background. So this these kinds of voices can... The biggest threat to the regime is from the nationalist camp right now, whether it's Dugin. And Dugin actually made some state statements like that in uh, after 2014, or actually 20, after 2016, uh, when, when President Trump, Trump got elected in the U.S., he kind of, they kind of declared victory over the West. And he said, now we can turn and clean our house and arrest all the corrupt officials. And then he was silenced again. This, this was Dugin. Um, so these kinds of voices are really the danger for the regime. They're really careful and not going against them. The liberal opposition can do nothing. They can be silenced easily. But nationalists are the real uh, problem here. And Strelkov, again, was is my litmus test so far because she's, she's more out there than Dugin. Dugin came out with, a, um, with an article, I think, a couple of weeks ago, which is kind of pretty ambiguous. It's kind of, of course, ultra-nationalist and all that, but it's not as critical, if you like, to the to the system um, as Strelkov is. So you're saying here that, well, Kremlin cares about swing voters, which means Kremlin cares a lot about public opinion, and they're afraid of, 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 of nationalists. I wonder, what's about Navalny and his team? How 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 important in the view of uh, of Kremlin these guys are? And, and, and I wonder also if you can elaborate a little bit on the sort of the normative side of the war from the Western perspective. How is the West approaching this war and how it shall approach this war? And especially one scenario which comes to my mind, and again, we're now at least, I'm, I'm now in Sweden and we had conversations here around that, well, Gotland is the part of Sweden, which again yeah. was mentioned in the Russian propaganda very often. There were a few violations of the Swedish airspace. So what if Putin starts to blackmail this neutral sort of country saying that, well, 
I'll bomb you if you don't reduce sanctions. Is the West ready to take action against such blackmailing and bullying or or not? Um, well, on the Western side, I, again, I'm, I'm going to do my disclaimer again. What I say is not like official U.S. policy. Um, but it's so the West has a couple of constraints. The West is actually a big coalition. Uh, so it moves slowly. You have to kind of create consensus in a very wide, you know, broad, broad set of nations. And you see a lot of countries that are, say, exposed to Russian energy leverage are, are reluctant. Uh, countries that are on the border might be actually uh, more afraid on the, in Eastern Europe in particular and want actually more engagement on the West. So you have different countries pulling in different directions. Countries have elections uh, going uh you know ahead so there's a lot of the just managing that coalition is a huge challenge so when a lot of people get frustrated about the west but the west only wins if it acts collectively and that collective action takes a lot of time to to hammer down uh that being said it's been pretty amazing actually given past experiences again this is not enough but given past experiences, how quickly the West actually moved on things like sanctions, deliveries of weapons, again, very, very slow in practical terms. But by the standard of the speed of the, West, the kind of Western consensus, this is, you know, groundbreaking. Um, so th that's one constraint. The other constraint is there's a lot of uh, pressure in, in a moral sense is kind of justified for the West to take a more direct uh, role in the war, which is, I don't know, a lot of the things that are mentioned are like provide a air policing air, like a, a, a free fly zone, if you like, uh, around Ukraine. Uh, the problem with those things is one is very technically difficult to, to carry that out. So on a no fly zone, first of all, we'll get uh, NATO planes sh shooting down Russian planes, which is a huge problem to begin with. Uh, second, uh, secondly, they have to, to be able to effectively police the air around Ukraine. They have to strike ground targets, ground surface to air missiles, which might not be in Ukraine, but might be in Belarus, might be in Russia proper. And they directly have an attack of, by NATO on Russian territory. So that's very dangerous. And when, when it's, and, and those are kind of the, uh, types of escalation that might drive things towards like the full WMD, even nuclear use uh, situations. And you don't, that's not going to help Ukraine because the highest likelihood for use of the, those kinds of weapons in escalation uh, and the highest likelihood target is Ukraine again, right? So like what it will do is we'll intensify the fighting in Ukraine dramatically. So it's much better to do the current approach of like just supplying Ukraine and uh, allowing Ukraine to kind of fight this war than escalating to, to the next level. So, that, you know, with those two sets of constraints only, you have a very frustrating constraint setup, actually, in what the West can do. Um, again, judging by historical standards, things are uh, going way beyond anybody expected in terms of how far things have gone uh, yet. Again, very frustrating uh, if you're on the ground and, you know, civilians get killed and you have these horrific images. Uh, I kind of personally sympathize. It's really hard to watch for me the, uh, this conflict because I went, I grew up in like former Yugoslavia and this is the same thing playing over and over again, um, you know, over there. Uh, but at the same time, you have to kind of keep your cool in terms of decision making and, and really analyze what what's the best and the worst thing to do in terms of the Western response um, on, on these things. Um, 
And uh, I'm sorry, I, I forgot the first question. Uh, got carried away on this one. Um, yeah, I think it was sort of this how how it shall approach. And and, and another question was um, whether he starts to blackmail the West and mm-hmm. uh, targeting the neutral states because right. you said they need crisis for sustaining the local sort of yeah. resistance to the nationalist or local regime power. They right. need to kind of reinvent this crisis. And you are absolutely brilliant in your research. You track this kind of what kind of amount of crisis, if you will, Putin needs to right. um, for for, stay, for sustaining the, the power. But I wonder, yeah, how shall West approach if they start to just say, well, we'll, we'll, we'll have another front here somewhere right. in, in Finland or in, in Sweden right. or somewhere else? No, I mean, if, if uh, Finland or Sweden decide to join NATO and like there is some uh, Russian reaction to that, I mean, the, the way that 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 threat would have been more credible if they performed this as intended in Ukraine, if like the Russian forces rolled over Ukraine in three days and uh, occupy the country in, in a week, then this this threat would have been kind of credible. They are struggling to to take small cities in eastern Ukraine, which nobody kind of expected them to be so bad. So how credible is the threat against Finland, which, you know, there was a history of a pretty war that went pretty bad for, for Russians in Finland. Finland is a very kind of prepared country, Sweden as well, uh, in, in terms of their defenses. So, oh, I mean, again, in terms of dosing those wars that the Kremlin needs, that will be a, the worst, pretty much the worst thing you could do. Uh, what they will do for sure is threats that are more actually intended for domestic audience in Russia than for these foreign audiences in places like like Sweden, uh, Sweden and Finland, pretending that we're doing something. So there were threats coming for, out of Dmitry Medvedev actually uh, the other day that will you know put nuclear missiles on the border and things like that. I mean those are meaningless things. Like you know the Russia has strategic nuclear weapons which they can retarget uh, on in three seconds. Uh, you know so you don't need nuclear, uh, missed tactical nuclear weapons on the border to threaten Finland or Sweden. So those are very kind of symbolic um, types of threats. Again, there'll be provocations in the air, maybe in the sea, on, on the kind of the land borders, like, you know, uh, planes coming close to, to Swedish or Finnish air uh, territory and then interceptions. Uh, there was an incident actually, I think uh, about a month ago uh, uh, near Gotland actually, where there was this uh, group of uh, Russian planes, including Su-24s, kind of bombers, fighter bombers, with what some analysts said might be kind of dummy nuclear weapons, basically kind of, uh, they look like the, 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 the real nuclear weapons. So again, I mean, these are things that are really folklore for domestic, uh, from a kind of purely military standpoint. Um, and every, every time they push, a, push this way uh, in Russia, they make things worse. Like, uh, I didn't expect in, in my lifetime to see Sweden and Finland moving so fast towards NATO membership, honestly. Um, you know, the, the, these are countries that haven't joined those institutions in over 70 years, of, uh, you know, before, during the, the worst periods of the Cold War, and they're, they're doing this um, now. So the more they push, uh, you know, in this direction and threaten these countries, the more they'll entrench them on the other side and starting any type of conflict with them would be honestly suicidal for, for the, the Putin regime. Given how things are going in Ukraine, um, it will be suicidal. It shouldn't be written off because they, they shown they can be delusional in, in terms of what they do. But I'm, you know, that's not something that can, can change things militarily in, in a major way. 
I would say. Another question from the from the audience, and please continue writing. We have seven more minutes of uh, Alex time, so write uh, your questions or raise hand if you want to ask him in person. Um, so, does Russia need a new front, or is it more dosing this crisis in Ukraine? And the question is whether Georgia or Moldova could be next target to kind of continue yeah. this fire, which is needed for sustaining the regime locally. Yeah. So, so Moldova was interesting at the beginning because there was a clear effort to to actually create this land bridge to to uh, to Crimea and then extend it to to Odessa, basically. And the, that extension to Odessa immediately kind of implies linking up with Transnistria. In, in Moldova, so that that was a risk at the at the time, but uh, even kind of from say a couple of weeks ago, they really exhausted the ground force to link up to any uh, you know landing by sea around that area or any provocation on the 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 side of Transnistria there. So that one, and especially after the sinking of the Moscow cruiser, which was crucial for providing air cover. Uh, to to that you know potential kind of uh, landing force in, in that area, this option is not realistic anymore. Like they just simply don't have the ground force to project from that land bridge towards Odessa to link up with with Moldova. Again, these small provocations can happen for symbolic value, but like in the, in a military sense, this is kind of spent on that side. Um, Georgia is actually kind of more complicated, I would say, um, going forward. Uh, but the way that they're troubled in Ukraine, they're actually pulling out forces from, from those statelets they created, from Abkhazia, Ossetia, and even Nagorno-Karabakh. They're, they don't have enough manpower. So they're pulling forces from these so-called peacekeepers in these locations to, to fight in Ukraine. So while Ukraine lasts... Given how low capacity they are to deal with this, this you know just simply not logistically doable to do anything more than symbolic incidents in these places. Um, it's actually kind of more on the opposite. Some some nationalists in in in, in some of these places said like now's the time to strike against Russia while they are distracted um, elsewhere. Uh, you know, uh, Azerbaijan actually made some uh, straight out moves. In, in the Nagorno-Karabakh region, uh, when the Russian peace, you know, peacekeepers again were were pulling out, so for the time being, no. Actually, while one conflict lasts, they, they have their hands more than full with one. Starting another one would be suicidal. They have to contain this one actually before before something else can happen. And also on the on the PR point, um, Ukraine is really something that can inflame public opinion in Russia to kind of create this sense of existential struggle with the West. Uh, smaller conflicts in, you know, in Georgia, for instance, are, they don't have that much of like public opinion influence as, as a, they're not so emotional, if you like, as the conflict in Ukraine. So it would be foolish from a strategic standpoint to start something in, in other, in these other regions, I would say. And uh, finally, we mentioned religion before finishing our podcast. Is Putinism a new religion is the question. Does he have any religion? No, no. Is Putinism a new religion? Uh, not really. It's a fake, it's a fake, whatever ideology, you, you know, nationalism, uh, religion, it's just fake. Uh, so basically it's kind of, uh, you know, one of the kind of the, the major historians you, you read in terms of kind of influence on, on Russian politics is Edward Keenan. And he has this, uh, you know, uh, uh framework of like, uh, uh, basically Russian, Russian institutions, uh, and Russian regimes have always had a, a, fair, a fairly fake ideology, basically going going forward, and Putinism probably the worst. Like this is a corrupt regime that's more in in terms of its real logic of functioning and lo- uh, and 
operation is more akin to a mafia state. So they're always looking for some ideology that has salience with the population to latch onto, whether it's religion, nationalism, whatever works, basically. And they've changed over the time. I mean, Putin started as some sort of a kind of quasi-liberal, if you know, for people who kind of followed this, then pivoted to something more of a kind of a uh, standoffish nationalist and then full-on nationalist and, you know, with adorned with all the religious symbols. So they're just stealing everything they can. They don't believe any of this. Um, again, like it's very superficial and has it become religion? Actually, the, the, uh, now it's in danger of being supplanted by, you know, now that he started this big effort in Ukraine, um, when you commit to a radical ideology, whether it's nationalism or it's a religious one, you kind of trigger the real, you know, radicals and you're in danger of being pushed away by these real radicals uh, to, to carry out that objective that you set onto uh, more than you actually, you know, is the regime uh, is creating a basis for support for the regime. So, you know, just really in general, any ideology Putinism has put forward is basically fake. Um, the danger is that the real radicals might take over by pushing out Putin uh, so sometime in the future, I would say. But like the, the appropriation of, of religion um, in particular in, in Russia has been, you know, absolutely obnoxious and disgusting uh, in this coming, uh, in this period. So like, you know, how they appropriated the Russian Orthodox Church to support all this is just beyond the pale. Um, and, and, you know, as you see, they're not going to be restrained in, in doing that going forward. Um, I think it's uh, time to say thank you so much again for, for your time and incredibly informative uh, conversation. And please follow us on Twitter, Religion Praxis. And uh, yeah, thanks for being today with us. Thank you very much. And it was a great pleasure to, to, to talk to you today. Mm-hmm.